0: Alas, how heroic is your expression? The conduct of a great man should be just like a dragon. Whenever it appears, it sweeps away all the mediocre ones. How could a great painter be satisfied with just pretty colors or casually waste his effort in depicting grass and insects?
1: Hi, I'm Alexis Sand.
2: And I'm Ian McInnes.
1: And this is Real Fantastic Beasts.
2: Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our fellow creatures today.
1: And today we have a special guest. This is Professor Winston Qian from the University of Utah, who is a specialist in Buddhist art of Asia. And our topic today
2: is Chinese dragons.
1: Yes, we're sort of dragon themed here in season two. Uh, we started out with Western dragons. We've talked about Japanese dragons, and and today we're going to take it even further back into the mists of time with Chinese dragons.
2: You don't need to have listened to those previous episodes, but if you are, if you if you want to follow our own logic through the the course of history, you will go back and listen to our episodes on European dragons and uh, on Japanese dragons with Laura Neufer.
1: Absolutely. So uh, Winston, I wanted to start by asking you about this sort of admonition that you just read to us about being like a dragon. Where does that come from? What is the context for that?
0: Yeah, it's a colophon or one of these writings that come at the end of a long hand scroll, kind of horizontal painting uh, format that was used in China traditionally. And it's a painting about nine dragons it's in the collection of the MFA Boston, dated to the 13th century by painter Chen Rong, who was a frustrated scholar official, who one day got drunk and took out his frustrations by painting this scroll of nine dragons. And that what I read was one of the uh, later uh, viewers of this painting, who was so moved by the dynamism and the divine quality of these dragons that he decided to write a colophon praising the painting. So that's where it comes from.
1: So now you're saying a, that this colophon is written right on the painting by a later viewer, not by the, not by the 13th century painter himself.
0: Well, there are uh, several colophons on the painting. And this is one of the unusual things about Chinese paintings, is that not only the painter or the immediate collectors but all the subsequent collectors might add their own writings to a painting. So you basically have art history, art history literally written on the paintings themselves. <laughs> that's uh, so
2: bizarre. So is, <laughs> from a Western perspective, that's so, that's so bizarre from a Western perspective. I mean, it would seem you know rude to write on somebody else's painting.
0: Yeah, that's one of the differences. The thing is that um, I mean, you had to write in very good calligraphy, And you had to write very good prose or poetry. I mean, if your calligraphy was bad or your your writing was bad, then you would be defacing the painting. But if it was good, then you would be adding to it. That was the belief.
1: Tell us a little bit more about this painting. I'm looking at the images on the Boston Museum of Fine Arts um, website and they're absolutely stunning. This is an ink painting?
0: It's an ink painting, yeah. So basically uh, all you have are ink tonalities. The white that you see in the image is actually the blank paper that hasn't been touched by ink. So there really is a sense here of transformation between mass and void, uh, clouds and mist, uh, the empty sky and the cloudy sky constantly shifting. And this kind of constant transformation is a very Taoist ideal one of the three religions of China uh, that believes in the power of transformation and especially the power of water and transformation. I think that dragons in China are very much linked with water. They are thought to control rain uh, as well as floods. So this is one of the reasons why I think ink paintings are particularly powerful in capturing the watery quality of these animals.
1: You say that they're watery quality, and I see these, you know, sort of clouds of mist and and maybe steam. But these dragons are also in the sky. I mean, they're aerial creatures up above these mountain peaks that are sort of suggested yes. with these slashing brush strokes. They're right. scaly. They're clawed. They have horns. Are these typical 13th century Chinese dragons that we're seeing here?
0: The the form of the dragon that we see in this painting is basically the typical form of the dragon, period. Long, sinuous body, four clawed feet, a head that kind of looks like a crocodile, and antlers. The reason that they're in clouds is because dragons are thought to not be limited to land or air, but move between land, air, and water. And clouds are actually thought to be a form of water in China. So this kind of still corresponds with their elemental quality as being associated with water to be in
2: clouds. Were they also associated with storms and, or, you know, sort of weather phenomenon or just clouds? Yes.
0: Yeah. Well, oftentimes uh, they'll be associated with thunder as a kind of harbinger of, of rain.
1: And why nine dragons? Is there a significance well, uh, to that?
0: Yeah. Well, nine is a very... Uh, Auspicious number in Chinese culture. They're also closely linked with dragons because dragons are thought to be auspicious. So, having nine dragons would be better than one. Nine is also a number that's associated with the emperor, and dragons are also closely associated with emperors. There aren't any legends that I know of where dragons transform into human beings or vice versa, but, but dragons are very closely identified with human beings they're thought to be, you know, the aspirational human being that 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 uh, people strive for. Do they speak? Do dragons talk? That's a good question. Not that I know it, not that I've heard of. I think that just their presence brings good things, and that's the important thing. I don't think that they are meant to actually communicate with anybody. I think that's one of the reasons why they're so grand and and majestic is because they do occupy their own realm. In a way, I think that a dragon speaking to a human being would be beneath them in, in, in Chinese, in the Chinese context.
1: Interesting. Do they go, I mean, this association between the dragon and the emperor, is that something that has sort of a definite starting point? Or when, when do you see the earliest sort of manifestation of the dragon in right. Chinese culture?
0: This association between the um, emperor and a dragon starts very early from the Han dynasty back in the 2nd century BCE. The sort of representation of a dragon with five claws as being specifically for the emperor would be something that started in the Yuan dynasty under the Mongols sometime around the 13th century. And that's where we start to have dragons with very specific numbers of claws. So five claws are always reserved for the emperor. Four claws for lesser nobility, three uh, for even lesser nobility, and so on. But when you get to three claws, um, basically anybody can use them. But basically <laughs> uh, using a dragon with five claws was reserved for the emperor. And if you were stupid enough to actually you know, wear something with five claw dragons and you weren't the emperor... You would be accused of treason and punished accordingly.
2: So it was a big deal to have five claws. <laughs> <laughs> where would you find, say, the emperor's dragon? Where would that normally be depicted? Is it textiles for clothing? Is it, you know, yeah. uh, architectural? I mean, like, or is it just sort of, ev- you know, everywhere and every surface imaginable? You can find a dragon.
0: Well, it wasn't all over wallpapered with a dragons in the, in the in the imperial palace. But they they were found in all media, so you might have them, you would definitely have them on ceramics, for example, on imperial porcelain meant for the emperor would be decorated with dragons with five claws. And that's one of the ways that people today value ceramics is that if you have a ceramic, let's say from the Ming dynasty, with a five claw dragon, you're pretty much sure that this is very high imperial quality uh, porcelain not even something that would be for the lesser nobility. But definitely on the court robes, the dragons would appear perhaps on the screens behind the thrones, other areas in the palace. But they weren't everywhere. They were just strategically placed. So it wasn't dragon overload if you were the emperor.
1: Were there other creatures that were symbolic of the emperor? No, (laughs) no. So it was pretty much the dragon or nothing.
0: <laughs> it was the five claw dragon or nothing.
1: Yeah. So oh, that makes me think. You mentioned the um imperial ceramics, like the the 5 claw dragon being reserved for the emperor. What about export ceramics? Did did you get four clawed, three-clawed, two clawed, but- no-clawed dragons? Like was there a sort of pattern for the ceramics that were produced for export to say Western Asia or or Europe?
0: Right. Now, that's a really interesting question. You know, I'm not an expert on export porcelain, but I have never seen an export ware with dragons. I don't think they were, they were of interest to uh, Western markets. Uh, what I see on, on, on export porcelain tend to be images that would have appealed already to Western audiences. And I don't think a dragon was one of them. I mean, the thing about the Chinese dragon is that it's not, I mean, I think that dragons in the West are seen as being very aggressive, and I don't know if it would have been a very pleasant thing to have on an export ware.
2: Well, and we also, I mean, dragons get associated with the devil in the European tradition, so you could imagine not wanting the devil on your, devil on your dinnerware, as it were. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> is there, uh, so in, uh, you know, in uh, Western heraldry, the position of the animal is itself also conventional, So much so that, you know, you can have a, you know, a lion rampant or a lion couchant lying down and that 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 all sort of conveys particular meaning are the say the imperial dragons are are there conventions in the in their uh, kind of positioning and representation, whether they're flying, whether they're on the ground that have meaning or is it just as long as it's got five claws, it can it can be doing anything. They're very
0: sinuous. That's one thing. You never really see dragons that are stiff. (laughs) They're always curled up in some way, uh, usually in an S-shaped curve. Um, The art historian Jessica Rawson has actually done a study of that motif, the S-shaped dragon, and how it travels across different cultures. Yeah, it's usually very sinuous. That's that's the main thing.
1: I mean, the dragons in the Dragon Scroll are so. There's so many different. It's almost as if he's playing with all the different ways you can imagine that these bodies moving in space
0: yes i think that the nine dragons i think you had asked that question earlier is why nine why nine dragons you know nine is an auspicious number but it also gives the opportunity to show dragons and transformation so Mm. one interpretation of the scroll is that we don't really we're not really seeing nine dragons We're just seeing one dragon in nine different manifestations, Mm. nine different transformations. Uh, That's one of the powers that dragons um, have in China. Uh, And we can see in the scroll that basically you have some that look very young, kind of in an anthropomorphic way, some that look older. And that, again, is part of that transformation.
1: I do want to go back to the scroll for a minute. Um, You mentioned that Chen painted this scroll because he was very frustrated and he went and got drunk and then painted. I mean, if you look at this thing, it does not look like the work of somebody who's out of their mind blotto. It's incredibly sophisticated and, and subtle. It has all of this incredibly finely painted detail and this very expressive quality of line. Um, what's that all about? What is that sort of story about the frustration and how do the dragons relate to that sense of sort of frustration?
0: Well, first of all, as you mentioned, you know, this scroll with nine dragons is very detailed, very deliberately and skillfully done. Clearly it wasn't done by somebody in a drunken outburst. So this legend around it about him doing this when he was drunk is kind of performative. This is what frustrated scholars are supposed to do. They get drunk and do things. So it's not exactly <laughs> real that he would have gotten drunk and, and, and painted this. I mean, he mo- he m- most likely painted this over a period of several months. You know, one of these dragons sh- should have taken several days just to paint one of them. But the transformative nature of dragons, the kind of hope that they embody, is part of his frustrations of the of the painter and the scholar. Uh, because they offer this chance to transform himself. One of the things that dragons do that's really important as well is that they there is this, this legend in China where carp, if they are very strong and very diligent, they can swim upstream and jump through this gorge called the Dragon Pass in the Yellow River and then transform from fish into dragons. And so this myth has uh, become very inspirational for generations of students, who think that you know they just work very hard, they pass an exam, and then they can be transformed into something quite different. So there is a close relationship between dragons and let's say scholarly success, which would be which basically would mean professional success in traditional China.
1: So are you saying that a dragon is essentially a carp with tenure?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, Yes, a full professor and a member of Congress.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So this raises a question. Dragons are associated with scholars. Dragons are associated with the emperor. These are definitely masculine roles. In other cultures that we've looked at, dragons have a kind of gender fluidity, I guess I would say, and are often associated with female Characteristics, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, well, de- uh, dragons are definitely gendered male in China. There are no female dragons, and this is because they are associated with the Yang principle, as in the Yin Yang sort uh, mm-hmm. of dualism. You know, Yin being feminine, Yang being masculine. Dragons are the embodiment of Yang principle or the the masculine principle. So. Um, there's nothing about them that's gendered feminine.
2: So they're not, I mean, d- well, okay. Maybe, maybe I should ask, do they sort of reproduce asexually or is in fact reproduction not really an issue? That is to say they're, some, they are, they are beings that exist and the lore isn't really about how you get more dragons.
0: Yeah. I, I don't think that's part of it. Um, I've never heard of, you know, dragon families or something like that, um, <laughs> Or mating uh, dragons, I think they're just there, and this you know association of them being gendered. It's not that they actually have a gender; they're they're gendered. You know, they're gendered male. they we can't call them male. Um, they're just kind of embodiments of the male principle.
1: Do they have a counterpart, another fantastical creature that's you know gendered female?
0: Yeah, that's that would be the phoenix. Ooh. So. Phoenix is gendered female, and that's the symbol of the empress. That would be the counterpart. They're not exactly portrayed in art in that way, though. You know, the two being sort of facing off or something like that, or, you know, in union. If we do see in art uh, dragons paired with another animal, it would be the tiger. They're kind of like these eternal uh, competitors in, in, in the folklore. In Japanese art, you often have these pairs of screens, One devoted to dragons and the other one devoted to tigers.
1: All right. So I have a question about dragon riders. Now in Western fantasy literature, you know, we like to imagine people taming and riding dragons. Do you ever see that in Chinese art or folklore? I don't know
0: if it's uh, taming a dragon. I mean, one of the very earliest representations of dragons is a 3rd century BCE painting on silk where you have a man riding a dragon, and that's thought to be a symbol of him going into um, his soul, uh, moving into an immor- immortal paradise, uh, according to the beliefs during that time period. But the man isn't riding the dragon to tame it. He's really working together with the dragon to you know, go to the place he wants to go
2: to. Right, but... Uh, Dragons are never yoked to vehicles in the way they are, say, in the Greek traditions, where uh, depending on who you are, you may have dragons pulling your chariot.
0: No, they're much too grand and much too independent to ever be tamed in the Chinese view. And in any case, nobody would want to do that. Like nobody would try to do that because it would just be such bad luck. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I can imagine.
1: Was there any association? I mean... I guess when we were talking about Japanese dragons, one of the things that we learned was that the dragon really came to Japan with Buddhism. And, yes. you know, there isn't much evidence for dragon-related folklore beliefs prior to the arrival of Buddhism in Japan. Is there an association between dragons and Buddhism in Chinese art?
0: Not really. I mean, there's some overlap. There is there's a Buddhist dragon that uh, has its own independent existence from China. It's mm-hmm. called a naga you know the, you could say that that's how you know the, the naga and the chinese dragons kind of merged together and then went to japan the, the buddhist naga and the chinese lung kind of merged together and then uh, ended up in japan but in china there's it's,
2: it's it's there's no buddhist art that i know of where dragons appear so i'm looking at the dragons on this wonderful scroll and an- they're interesting anatomically in in so many ways. I mean, they do have, there's the sinuousness and the sort of clearly reptilian scaly nature that does seem to be kind of one of the reasons people connect Chinese dragons with other dragons as is as, as the category. The head is really interesting. It's got, so it's got horns, which I kind of want to know about, but it also has streamers or like little whiskers or barbels. And I wondered, it does make me think now that you mentioned the carp, that there is something carp-like about the head of the, the dragon. And I, I wonder, you know, maybe the story of the, the carp may have been derived from that, or maybe the other way around, that you've got the story of the dragon, of carp turning into dragon. So of course you're going to represent dragon that dragons that way. Or do you invent that story based on the look of the dragon? What are those tendrils?
0: <laughs> it's a good question. No, I mean, I think that, you know, your, your series is called uh, Fantastical Beasts. And beasts are usually, I mean, f- Fantastical Beasts usually are composite creatures, Right. They're not entirely made up fresh. They're just pieces like put together like a Frankenstein animal. And that's certainly the case for Chinese dragons. I think that those tendrils are probably some type of, I don't know what what you call them on carp. They're not whiskers, or maybe they are called whiskers. Um, But they do look like like something uh, that you might find on fish. Yeah. And the eyes are so expressive
2: as well, really.
0: (laughs) The eyes are really expressive. And um, that's just something about this particular painting that the painter has really, um, you know, imbued this uh, sense of almost inner psychology uh, into the dragons
2: that make it really special. So again, scrolling back through this image, one of the dragons is holding something in its claw, which could either be the moon or it could be a jewel or a pearl of some kind. And that is one of the things that we noticed uh, in terms of similarities ac- across um, traditions when we when we did the Japanese dragon. Is this idea that that dragons might have access to, in some ways, some magical gem-like item, uh, whether that's a part of their body or something that they control, or or you know, a symbol that they would give to lucky people.
0: Well, in this case, the dragon is holding the pearl of wisdom. This is something that dragons do, is that they chase after pearls of wisdom and this particular dragon has caught it. He's achieved his goal and he's holding it in his hand.
2: He looks very happy.
0: He looks extremely uh, satisfied.
1: I think there's a wonderful tension here between spontaneity, a sort of um, rhetoric of spontaneity both in the story, the backstory on the scroll and the sort of expressive movements and the Ephemeral shifting of the of the water vapors in the painting, and then this incredible laboriousness and, and focus on creating these forms. And I wonder if you think about dragons being painted onto the surface of imperial porcelain. That's also, I mean, an incredibly intentional, painstaking process, and then it creates these very free flowing forms it's sort of a wonderful paradox.
2: Right. Like and labor, labored effortlessness.
0: Yes. that's that You've summed up uh, the scholarly ideal in China. You want to, you know, be perf- perfect, but not look like you actually strive for it.
1: I think it's a little bit like the Italian Renaissance ideal of Sprezzatura, you know, like this idea of just like an ease, but polish at the same time. Do you have... Um, you know, particular examples of porcelain or, you know, a particular work that sort of to you seems iconic or particularly interesting as a as an example of this sort of adaptation of the dragon motif to these objects?
0: Sure. There's uh, one that immediately comes to mind. It is a very large porcelain piece that could have only been made for the Emperor because it's clear that they had to do a hundred trials before they came up with something so perfect. It's a very large globe, globular vase, and it's a perfect circle in that way. Uh, And dragons are very appropriate to decorate sort of circular forms because they're already so sinuous that they really curve around, let's say, a rounded shape of a ceramic vase perfectly. So I think that would be um, my sort of ideal union between the dragon as a motif. And let's say ceramics as a as a surface. Is this a blue and white um,
2: ceramic? It is a blue um, and
0: white one, and, and I could send you a link to it later. Um, there's it, this. This one is in the collection of the National Palace Museum in Taipei, um, and it was you know part of the, the the imperial collection, and it has a dragon with five claws. So it's very you know appropriate for our conversation today
2: to have an example of that. You know maybe link to your to your site. You mentioned how long, how, ba- how far back in time the interest in dragons goes. Do we see changes happening? You know, as you move from dynasty to dynasty, is there an is there any kind of evolution in the representation of the dragon or its significance? I think that when you get to the last dynasty, the, the last imperial dynasty
0: in China, the Qing dynasty, they actually uh, use the dragon as the symbol of their national flag. And in that case, the sinuousness of the dragon that we've been talking about becomes extremely frozen all of a sudden, you know, because it has to be appropriate for a flag. And the point of a flag, I think, is to be very, you know, hierarchical. So uh, that's I think that's one sort of evolution of the form of the dragon. Perhaps it's not a, a particularly positive evolution, but that's one change that we do see as the dragon kind of enters into the modern era. The last dynasty of China ended in 1911, so we're, we are really coming into the 20th century. And dragons are still you know, important. They're still part of the, you know, their national flag. The People's Republic of China actually debated whether or not to have a dragon on their flag. But the argument was that it would have been too aggressive a symbol because they realized that Westerners would be looking at this flag too and so they opted not to uh, choose
2: the dragon for their national flag the prc oh, that that is so interesting and it's also it's interesting that you know you you suggest that the the dragon becomes progressively less fluid or like more rigid as though instead of the other way around where the older things are the fossils and <laughs> and the living creatures are in the current it seems as though the the, the chinese dragon is in, in the process of fossilizing over time <laughs>
0: that's an interesting way to look at it yeah um I mean in some ways that's part of the process of art uh you may the 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 painting that we're that we've been discussing you might call it a more a you know kind of classical rendition of a dragon at its high point you know that it's perfectly balanced in terms of its sinuousness um, and its kind of personality but all art goes into those rigid phases and it has to be reinvented after that. So it's it's a kind of um, you know you might even say an inevitable phase in most art forms to enter into that that fossilized phase.
1: I wonder if you know the sort of not exactly mass production but widespread production of dragon images on porcelain itself doesn't contribute to that kind of process of fossilization. You have a hard medium. You have a kind of Set of physical constraints, and then you have these dragons wiggling all over the surfaces of these things. But if you're making a lot of dragon vases or dra- dragon cups, you're gonna, as an artist, probably make a routine and then just follow that. And then maybe your students learn your routine, and their students learn that routine, and it sort of so it goes.
0: Yeah, no, I would say that the vast majority of dragons on porcelain are very routine and boring. It's really the highest level imperial porcelains with dragon dragons, where the dragons come to life. They're really the only ones worth looking at. So I'm going to send you the link to that, that vase that I mentioned. It has a really good dragon.
1: <laughs> I like the idea that there are good dragons and meh dragons.
2: Meh <laughs> <laughs> dragons. Although, you know, I, I will say compared to the stiffness of so many representations of dragons in the West, even the most boring, conventional, sinuous dragon on, uh, on Chinese porcelain is way more exciting and interesting in some ways than, uh, than some other dragons. Although, you know, the, the stiffness of dragons that sometimes has a certain kind of charming anthropomorphic effect, they seem awkward
0: I mean, I'm wondering
2: if in the West um, dragons were ever aestheticized the
0: way that they are in China.
1: I think that's a good question because certainly not in the medieval period so much. I mean, their their function in medieval art is so much um, a function of expressing evil. They're a figure for Satan or a figure for destruction. They don't really have... They don't really have a positive side as we discuss. Um, I mean, they have a sort of fantastical, fascinating side, but it's the fascination of the repulsive rather than the fascination of the intrinsically beautiful. You know, there
2: are sinuous zoomorphic images across the Western tradition, but they're not kind of contiguous with with dragon with dragons and dragon lore. There are often other creatures which have been made sinuous. And Form capital letters in manuscripts, and right. Uh, so yeah, the, dra- the dragon. I think the, the negative overtones mean that people are not wanting to get drunk and draw dragons as much. There is this tendency in the medieval tradition to render written characters as you know, be- as sort of bestial illustration or or other things, right? To use the curves of the letters and things like that. And I wonder, given the sinuousness of the of the dragon. Does Chinese calligraphy ever make letters out of animals, dragons or other? Sometimes, yes.
0: One of the interesting things about dragons is that the character, the Chinese character for dragon, long, actually looks like a dragon. <laughs> I mean, it has oh, a kind of head, kind of sinuousness to the character.
1: Getting back to Chen Rong does he at any point in this scroll write anything? I mean, is is the poetic inscription, for example, that I see at the end of the scroll, is that his inscription explaining the origin of the painting, or?
0: Yeah. So the 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 first uh, colophon at the end of the painting is the artist's poem, where he describes his sort of frustrations and you know the drunkenness that he entered into to paint this, and it's actually the, his the only extant. Uh, calligraphy that we have by Chen Rong, uh, oh. that's in, on this painting. So it's very valuable for that too.
1: It's absolutely beautiful. It's very loose and and fluid. It comes
2: right after, I don't, depending on which way direction you're reading it, but right in, in between two dragons, one of whom is the one holding the pearl of wisdom. Which g- given that his poem is about frustration or you know uh, in- intoxication makes me wonder whether wisdom itself was associated with uh, altered states, right? That idea of, you know, like holy madness or access that you get to to knowledge through uh, intoxication.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, one of the things about this scroll is that it's very Taoist. You know, Chen Rong identified as a Taoist. All the other uh, people who viewed the, the painting and then wrote their own holophants were identified as Taoist. So we're really looking at a at a at a Taoist painting of dragons and in taoism uh altered states is very important uh that's where you become transformative I mean taoists are known to ingest drugs
1: and that to me is exactly what this painting captures i mean the 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 flow along the horizontal axis of the painting you're switching from mountains to storm tossed ocean waves to you're sort of like in a, what do they call it? A, a flotation tank with the, like, with the sensory deprivation and you start hallucinating and this is what you see, you know?
0: Yeah. There, I mean, now that you mention it, it does look like somebody who may not have been drunk, but definitely
2: was on something. So does this mean that Chinese dragons are also in some ways emblematic of cognition, right? Of the process by which you imagine or think through yeah, I think
0: you're reading a lot of really interesting things into the scroll. Uh, <laughs> we've done a lot. I think we've just, we've done a lot for this painting today. I don't think anybody's <laughs> talked about this painting so much.
1: It's such and, a fascinating work, you know? I mean, it just has so much going on.
2: I mean, at least it's clear that the way dragons are being represented is well-established very early, and there is variation, but... You can clearly see even the dragon on the flag that you mentioned, stiff and awful as it is, is clearly a a relative of these dragons. And that's something you don't see in the Western tradition where dragon, there's a huge variation in kind of conventions of representing dragons, including whether they have wings or not even. And and I I do notice that Chinese dragons fly, but they don't need wings to do it. It's clearly a magical flight.
0: Exactly. Right. It's um, they
2: move in ways that are not physical. There we go. We can travel to the stars if we could only harness the Chinese dragon.
1: And I mean, it it is such a strong contrast to what we learned about Japanese dragons and what we've learned about European dragons. I mean, they all have magical qualities, right? Because they're dragons. But it seems to me that the Chinese dragons are much more dragons of the mind, whereas the dragon that Beowulf fights at the end of that poem is very definitely a, a sort of worldly dragon a dragon of worldliness you know and sort of material goods it's associated with treasure but not any kind of spiritual treasure just tre- like actual treasure
2: and when it is spiritual it's it's often negative such as greed right you know yes. like, yeah which is a which is a, a mental phenomenon just as much as pearls of wisdom and and uh you know intoxication and scholarship.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if in the West, I mean, dragons ever enter into the more elite realms that we've been talking about in the Chinese context.
1: There are certainly aristocratic families that have the dragon as their heraldic animal, but it's not, it doesn't have the kind of royal or imperial connotations. I mean, the imperial animal of choice (laughs) in the West is always going to be the eagle.
2: Yeah, and I mean there is there is a tendency to use what we would call the fantastical or imaginary creatures in heraldry, in ways that are always a little edgy, right? So you might, if you had a dragon in your crest, it it would be powerful, but it also might suggest that your family had some skeletons in the closet, some <laughs> problematic relationships with things like gold, <laughs> or whatever it might be, which they're willing to kind of acknowledge, and which is why those things persist. Heraldically, but a, a, a an animal like a lion is always going to be more noble.
0: I think that the um, the, the your, your comment about the noble animal, the dragon would be the noble animal in the Chinese context.
1: Yeah, right. interesting. I mean, there are certain like the dragon is very closely associated with whales, for example, and that may have to, something to do with whales' position within the history of. Britain. You know, there are a certain number of coats of arms that show dragons, but as antagonists against maybe St. George or or some other warrior figure. So they're kind of set up as ideal antagonists to demonstrate the sort of chivalric or knightly heroism of the family. But they're not really, they don't have the sort of intrinsic high status. I think there's an association between Portugal and the dragon too. Or a specific type of dragon known as a wyvern, which is, by the way, our little motif for real fantastic beasts. It's a, <laughs> it's like a, a dragon with no legs, but wings <laughs> or no back legs. It has front
2: yeah. legs. So. It's, it's an awkward. It's an awkward dragon. <laughs> it's
1: it's our, a very awkward it's, creature. Yeah. Is our, it's our logo.
2: Well, you know, Winston, we're, we're going to uh, have to come back to you on, I think, uh, the phoenix because we haven't done the phoenix yet. And clearly, that's another noble animal paired with, not paired with, but sort of coexisting with the dragon um, in the Chinese tradition. And then we are going to be kind of returning to the tiger in some in some interesting ways. And so maybe I think you know it's worth uh, coming back to Chinese tigers um, as well. So I think I think we've also laid the grounds for some future fantastic. Uh, creatures here. Tigers and um, and phoenixes don't play the same
0: role in art, uh, in Chinese art, that, that dragons do. They're just well, not that important.
2: We're, we're broad-minded. You know, we, we're, <laughs> there's there's always lore. There's always t- you know, there's tiger lore, there's phoenix lore. We cover it all. We are, our, our tastes are, are wide-ranging.
1: I mean, I guess one of the things that's really, like, as we sort of tried to look at dragons in particular, from a number of different cultural perspectives, what's really come home to me is that despite the fact that, of course, the words used to describe these creatures are different, the history and religion and social significance of these creatures varies widely. There's, it's not like, you know, there's a dragon. And, and especially I think dragons make this point because dragons are entirely, in the end, creatures of our minds. There is this type of animal that it seems like we need as human beings for thinking with it and it is an animal that resembles in some ways animals that we know, whether fish or snakes or lizards, then it performs these kind of necessary functions it helps people think through certain kinds of problems, problems of ambition, problems of frustration or problems of temptation and dragons definitely dwell in that realm that realm of our sort of our urges and desires
0: you know i think it it is interesting that human beings do tend to look at certain animals as bigger than themselves
1: yeah no that's really interesting the idea of scale dragons are always massive aren't they
0: although i've never seen an example of a dragon well except for the one that painting that i'd mentioned of the of the Man riding the dragon. Typically they aren't,
2: you know, represented alongside human beings. Right. But if they're in clouds, you know, with a natural back I mean, they seem big. I think they're big. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that those are some big dragons in that scroll. <laughs> Bigger than us in the way that the weather is the weather is larger than we are. Well
1: this has been fun. I think we've learned quite a bit about Chinese dragons and Anyway, thank, thank you. you again
2: for, for coming on. And we uh, so appreciate the time you've given us. Thanks for yeah, having thanks. me. thanks. it's fun. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation.